Hi, everybody, and happy Thanksgiving Day weekend. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson broadcast on justthenews.com. I'm excited to announce that my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism, just came out and is available anywhere. Makes a great holiday gift. Today in this podcast, you will be listening to a live chat that I did with people calling in and commenting online. We talk a lot about the relevant news topics of the day. you're having a great day. I want to talk about a couple different things. Please don't hate me for promoting my book, Smear. Not too many people are going to, I'm sorry, Slanted, Smear was the last one. Not too many people are going to promote this book in the media because it talks about the media. And it talks nicely about some at the end because I give some recommendations since you guys are always asking, where can I turn in the meantime while the media mess is being sorted out? I have some ideas and some hopeful suggestions. But the reason that you really need to read this book or give it to somebody that cares about what's happening with the media, it's, it's not just the media. And I've been talking about this the last couple of weeks. The things that have happened in the past four years with the media and beyond are creating um, a crisis in confidence in our institutions. So media is one of the institutions that we don't have faith in anymore our politicians and political figures, our health agencies that provide conflicting information and then ask us why we don't trust them when they try to tell us what to do. Um, Our Department of Justice that we know selectively applies justice depending on who it's looking at. Um, So our court systems don't have, we don't have a lot of faith in that sometimes. So even when the courts are doing the right thing or the media is telling the truth or our politicians are looking out for our best interests, we just don't necessarily believe they are because going by history, the recent past, um, they've just created this lack of confidence. It's a really bad place to be. But in Slanted, which just came out on Tuesday, pre-order anywhere, actually order now because you can even get it within a day or two or get it on your Kindle immediately. I talk about what and who's behind it. So you know it's happening, but why the trend and how are they so effective at creating these narratives and getting the press to stay on air. Let's talk about one I saw today. So Sidney Powell finally filed her two of her lawsuits, Georgia and Michigan. And I'm reading about, I'm actually trying to find the links, which are made so that you can't share the links on Twitter. It says it's a dangerous website, so you can't really share the links. So I put them on my CherylAckison.com site. You can go there and get to the lawsuits. But here's a narrative. I start reading one article after another that says Sidney Powell's error-ridden lawsuits that have formatting errors and spelling errors. And they're all copying each other, other reporters. They're not reading the lawsuit, mind you. They're not summarizing the lawsuit. They're not doing the job of a journalist. They're just copying each other. So one writes, hey, there were typos in it. And then the other writes, hey, so-and-so said there were typos in the lawsuit. Everybody's writing about the typos in the lawsuit. And that it's discredited because of that, in their view, or they want you to think it's discredited because there's some typos in the lawsuit. I mean, I haven't seen too many lawsuits that don't have some typos in it. But regardless of that, that has nothing to do necessarily with the merits of what's in there. And the journalists are too lazy to read the lawsuits. They're just passing along 
the narrative that there's typos in the lawsuit. It's just silly. It just, it's embarrassing for me as a reporter to see that. So I found the links. I'm going to go through those and I'm trying to um, compile, I hope to do this soon, a summary of the claims that are being made in all the states because it's hard when you hear this and that. I need to, I'm good at organizing and I can't investigate every claim. And I'm not saying whether they're true or not, but everybody wants to know, well, what are the claims and what's the evidence so far? I'm going to try to put that together. Another narrative is that there has to be evidence presented, like airtight evidence on the front end. And I know just a little bit from my own court experience, I'm still suing the Department of Justice over the intrusions, you know, the government's intrusions into my computers. Department of Justice is still defending the guilty agents. But one thing I know from this is you're not, you can't have the evidence, all of the evidence on the front end, if you're an alleged victim of something, let's say you're alleging election fraud, you don't have the power to march into a business and confiscate a server and do a forensics exam inside of a couple of days before you present to a court. What the court expects, my understanding on the front end, is credible or plausible claims. And that's enough, if it's enough, to allow it to go forward, then the court grants the power for you to issue subpoenas and collect depositions from the other side and get discovery. That's where you get the evidence. You can't, it's sort of weird that, again, another narrative that the media collectively said on the front end, where's the evidence? As if it somehow pops out the day after the election and presents itself and says, here's the guilt. Here's who did it. It's just silly. You know, the journalists need to either search for the evidence, as we usually do with a story, search for the evidence ourselves, and or understand that there are there plausible claims by credible people, sworn affidavits under oath, um, people who've proven reliable in the past, perhaps, or maybe not. But these are judgments you use. You don't say, we, the media, will decide the case before evidence could possibly be collected and presented to a court. And that's kind of what we're doing, demanding to see, to be convinced by the evidence that's not even gettable yet. So the jury's still out, so to speak, if there ever will be a jury in this stuff, it's moving along. And I say, from an analytical standpoint, what's the harm in playing this out, you know, the legal options? If people want the public to have confidence in the results, especially those who are skeptical, there's a better chance of that if this plays out. If it plays out and in the end, the courts look at it and say there's nothing to it or you know, it's heard out and there's nothing that's done or can be done or the claims according to the court are discredited or not proven. At least they played out. But what's the benefit to saying we shouldn't hear them? We shouldn't make them. Nobody should be allowed to present them. That just sows the distrust and the mistrust among those who suspect maybe something was amiss. And then I also say from a neutral standpoint, whoever you support, I think if you watch this just from my position as a journalist, there's enough smoke that it's legitimate and rational to ask the questions that, that are being asked. Um, I, I think it's odd for people to say on the front end that the questions shouldn't be asked, that this should all just go away. And, you know, the, let's, let's look at it one way. I was thinking about an analogy in 2016. And I'm going to go somewhere with this in a minute. You'll see where I'm going. But let's say in 2016, Hillary Clinton had appeared to win by a landslide on election night and that over the course of the next day or two, everything flipped. I mean, not just a little bit, but flipped in a big way. 
And that had never happened before. Well, I think, understandably, the Hillary Clinton people and her supporters would say, this is strange. And they were already alleging there was foreign interference. So everybody would dig into that and say, what happened? This is unusual. Something seems to be amiss. Maybe it is nothing, but it's certainly legitimate for journalists and people to ask the question. So likewise, we're doing an election in 2020 like we've never done it before with more absentee and mail-in ballots and rule changes and so on. And we know the context is that supposedly China and Russia have tried to interfere or have interfered previously and are going to do it again, we're told. And we know the context is that domestic bad actors have interfered in politics and even allegedly broken the law to try to get at Donald Trump. So we should have gone into the, as journalists and those who cover elections and politics should have gone into 2020 very skeptical and with our eyes peeled and on the ground looking for any hint of impropriety and ask these rational, skeptical questions. So now let's back up. If, if this time in 2020, without any prep, without any narrative being planted in advance, if Trump had won, appeared to win on election day by quite a bit, and then it had all flipped, we, had, we would have been asking, I think, as a society, those same rational, skeptical questions. We would have said, this is the strangest thing that's ever happened in an election. We'd better look deep and make sure that there wasn't foreign interference, make sure there wasn't domestic interference, make sure there wasn't voter fraud. The reason I think so many people on one side are saying that's not necessary is the narrative was set up six, seven, eight months ago. Remember, they got us used to and the media played into this and didn't critically think about it in my view or was part of it. Got us used to thinking that the most unusual thing that would happen was all normal and therefore nothing to look at skeptically. They started telling us six, seven, eight months ago. It will appear as though Trump won on election day, but just wait, because as the votes are counted, that's going to be a red mirage and that'll go away. And actually, Democrats and Biden will win. So, by you know, I remember thinking back then, how do they know this prior to a single vote being cast? They were saying these things prior to a single vote being cast. And the media was reporting it and analysts were saying it like it was a fait accompli. There was just no changing. And I just kept going, how do they know that? when no one's even cast a vote, like they shouldn't pretend they know something in the future that's just a prediction. We will be back with more of the live chat after a quick break. And now we continue with an excerpt from a live Thanksgiving Day chat. So sure enough, I feel like we were so prepped to get used to the notion of something that was really strange so that we wouldn't question it. And that's kind of what happened. So the strange thing happened in this unprecedented election. That doesn't mean there's fraud on its face. That doesn't mean that it wasn't valid, but it's certainly a reason to ask rational, skeptical questions in the environment that I've just talked about. And the fact that so many people are saying, well, we knew that was going to happen. That's the success of the narrative that the propagandists put out and planned ahead of time. I don't know who is at the top of the chain, who thought of it. Someone thought of it. Someone thought of Red Mirage. Someone sent the talking points out and so that everybody would start talking about it. And then the media uncritically picked it up because for some reason we just pick up these narratives without thinking about it sometimes. So I think that's interesting. Um, and I talk about that stuff. So I almost called this book slanted. I almost called it the narrative 
And the publisher, we, we kept looking for other names because people weren't sure what the narrative was. And I will tell you, when I worked at CBS, I didn't a long time ago know, know what the narrative was. And I started hearing people in the newsroom use it, and I didn't know what it meant. And then I came to understand the narrative meaning a storyline that someone's trying to put out to make you think a certain way. And it may be contrary to the truth or not the whole truth, but it's some special interest for reasons that they're usually not going to disclose wants to shape something and get you on point with something. And almost everything I see on the news, the first thought I have is whose narrative is that is particularly when everybody's using the same language and the verbiage and everybody's on the same page. That's not a naturally occurring thing. The news ought to have all different things on different stations that they think are news that they think should be reported. There's thousands of stories that could make the news on a given day. The fact that we're all on point with the same three or four stories, not full measure, by the way, but in general, a lot of news organizations shows you the power of the narrative, the effectiveness of the propagandists that make sure we talk about what they want us to talk about, even if we're given both sides, but we're on point with what they want us to talk about. And we're not talking about the things they don't want us to talk about. And one of the most dangerous things, I think, and this was a new concept, but now years ago, but we're now used to it. This is what scares me. When this concept first came to me and I was at CBS News in the early 2000s, I was like, what's going on? Now I'm used to it. But the concept was a corporate interest or political interest, not only wanting to be heard, that's normal. You want to put their side in a story, but not wanting the story to air. And the first time that happened to me, I just, I'm like, why do they want the story not to air? You mean they don't just want their side told? That's common now, the censorship of one side or the idea that one side's story shouldn't be told or it's illegitimate or a view shouldn't be heard or a scientific study shouldn't be passed around because it's not the right scientific study or it didn't come to the right conclusions. This is a pretty new concept. This didn't used to exist. This wasn't how we covered the news. It wasn't how we censored information. And now I'm afraid people are kind of getting used to it, just sort of like, oh, yeah, this is I I even had someone say to me, someone I'm friends with, that they're glad that social media is censoring things because, you know, he he said a lot of bad information is being passed around. I said, what makes you think if you know that, that other people don't know that? What makes you think that if you want to buy to exaggerate, to make an argument, if you want to buy the National Enquirer? at the grocery store, why should the grocery store manager step in front of you in the checkout line and say, you can't buy that? You're not smart enough to either see that as entertainment or discern between fact and fiction. And guess what? And there's a reason I say this. You have a right to consume information that may not be true or that people say isn't true. And it may be, you know, as things turn out later, we've we've found that censored information turns out to be the truth and vice versa. But you actually have the right to consume information that's not true if you feel like it and to believe it if you want to, because this is America. There shouldn't be somebody dictating that you can't see it, that you can't make up your own mind. And there was a study going around about masks and people were saying, oh, that study shouldn't go around and, you know, it's false. And if you read it, it says this and, you're, and people are making t- different conclusions from it. Well, guess what? If you saw that, other people can see it, too. They can make their own conclusions. They can read the study. You're basically saying when you want to censor it that they're too stupid or you don't like what they're going to conclude or you don't think it's right what they're going to conclude. It's a controlling behavior on your part if you want to censor this information. You want to be able to see it, but you don't want other people to be able to see it and make up their own minds. Another distinction that I'd like to talk about 
a lot of people know something's wrong with the media and that there's control, but they're going one level deep. And I talk about in slanted. Sometimes it's two or three. I do. I need one of those donut lights. I ordered one. Actually, you need to go two or three levels deep. And what I mean by that is some people are saying, well, there's social media censorship, but some of it's well-meaning because there's a lot of bad information being put out there and shared. It could be harmful. Well, besides the notion that that's none of their business, in my view, they're not experts on the information. They're not, you know, people that should be censoring our information when we didn't ask them for it. But beyond that, you guys, and I think some of you know this, these aren't independent, well-meaning people who are fact-checking our information. They're being pushed and pressed by the same propagandists, corporate interests, political interests, money interests. Let's say a study they don't want you to see. There's money behind that. There's a reason they don't want you to see that information. It's not the goodness of their heart that they really want the truth out there. It's that in many cases, and I think I've made a good case for this in my last book, The Smear, and in the new book, Slanted, with a lot of evidence, these are people that want to influence what you think, not because of the good that they're doing for you, but because of who they work for. And the big tech companies didn't think this up on their own. They were influenced and are influenced by political figures, either with the threat of regulation. Yes, there's ideology involved. Yes, they're on board with a left-leaning ideology. But it's more than that. Uh, David Brock of the liberal propaganda group Media Matters, he takes credit for in 2016, right after Trump was elected, he takes credit for among his donors going to Facebook and convincing them to start their what I call fake fact checks. This came from the outside. I don't think big tech wanted to necessarily do it before they started deciding that if they didn't accede to some of these political interests, they either faced regulations or they were beholden to some corporate interest. There's, there's all kinds of reasons that they became convinced to get in the middle of us and our information. And I think that, um, I think one interesting thing about this is that they got us hooked on a false premise. The false premise was when we started with these social media companies and the internet and chats and Google and so on, the promise was we thought we were getting free access to information and exchanging ideas. And we knew that our data might be used and kind of sold. But I think in the beginning, we weren't thinking about censorship. Quite the opposite, right? This was a way we were going to be able to exchange views and connect with other people. And once they got us hooked and dependent on the technology, and they got so big where we all wanted them and liked it and needed it, almost like they're drug dealers and we're on the drug, they then change the terms. All of a sudden, they now want to censor and control the narratives and control what we see and do. Well, that's not what we signed up for, but it's kind of feeling like it's too late because here we are, dependent on it. And that's why I think some of these other platforms like Parler and Rumble, <coughs> that's where they're coming into play and trying to make inroads into this and say, hey, we're over here. We're not going to do all of that. I think when um, they started big tech censoring, it's a slippery slope because now they can't win. I mean, they're winning for their political and corporate interests, but they're not winning in the court of public opinion because there's always going to be a demand for them to do more and censor more. Why aren't you censoring them? Why are you doing this but not doing that? How come you're not fact-checking political ads? 
you missed this one over here. I mean, for them, the better position would have been as a platform for them to say, as some of these alternate platforms are saying, we pretty much don't censor anything except that which is illegal. The rest of it, we give you tools to do that. So you don't have to see stuff that you don't want to see. You don't have to see stuff that's objectionable. You don't have to see stuff that's racist or sexist or hateful. But that was always left up to us. That's why those tools exist previously. Now they're saying, you can't do that for yourself. You're not smart enough. Or quite frankly, what they're saying is, if we don't do it for you, you might come to the wrong views and conclusions. And you might run across the wrong studies and believe the wrong information. But think of the lack of confidence that they have in you to say that, number one. And number two, think of how arrogant it is because they're saying, we get to see the information. We know what it says. And we're smart enough to call through it and decide what's good and what's true. But you're not. We'll do that for you. So um, Tammy says that's what they said to Winston in 1984. Tammy, did you know that's how I start my book? With 1984 quotes. And I talk about Winston Smith, what his job is. And I think, I feel like in some respects, we've arrived in Orwell's 1984. I don't know that people have to read this, kids read this anymore in school on Animal Farm. I, I don't think they're shocked anymore, you know, as we are, if you have the perspective of time, I'm going to be 60 in January. I've seen a change. If you're young today, you haven't seen a change. This is just how it is. Information is censored. The government steps in. You know, it's, it's, that's the scary thing, the, the slow burn where only the older people will see the change and the younger people will just accept it, like it or not. They'll just say that's kind of how it, how it goes. My book is available on Audible. Thanks for asking. I read it myself with my own voice. It's available on Kindle. Go to, go to Amazon. Leave a great review if you like it. Please leave a good review. Refer it to your friends. And I think it's... um. A great book to give to someone you care about that's curious about this stuff but hasn't scratched beneath the surface, maybe. The good news is I, I wrote all my books this way. Each chapter is freestanding. So you can skip around. You can find the ones that you're most interested in if there's one you want to skip. doesn't hurt my feelings. I mean, I think they're all interesting, but maybe some more interesting than you, or maybe you want to read them out of order. That's all fine. All right, let me go to a chapter. I dissect the Russian narrative in a way that's more detailed, I think, and more interesting, even though that has been looked at a lot than the other stuff you've probably heard about. Here's a chapter I like. CNN, the cable news narrative. Now, what do I like about this chapter? Well, some of you may know I used to work at CNN back when it was a news organization, back when we wouldn't have dreamed of editorializing about things that they talk about today and very little political coverage like we have now. Most of the news we covered was about other stuff going on in the country and the world. There's a ton of stuff. You'll see that covered on Full Measure, my Sunday TV show. Look at fullmeasure.news to, to see recent segments. Just regular news, not all politics, the same stories over and over again. That's what CNN used to be. And I interview a bunch of former CNNers, including top executives and people that ran and run news divisions at the networks to get their opinions on the news for this book. And they spoke to me. I don't think any other book has done this. So I'll start. I'll just read a little bit of the CNN chapter. 
CNN, the cable narrative network. I can't watch CNN, says one-time cable news network standard bearer Lou Waters. A lot of former CNNers said much the same, unprompted, when I told them I was writing about what has become of our alma mater. Waters, once an anchor at CNN, doesn't mind being quoted by name from my book. I can't watch any of them, he continues, referring to cable news channels in general. There's no news anymore on cable television, which is what CNN was invented to provide. It's heartbreaking in a way and mind-numbing, he says, a threat to everything I grew up with in the news business. I spent a whole career in the news business, and now it's being denigrated, minimized by false equivalence between opinion and news. In short, I write, CNN has become cable narrative network, establishing or carrying water for the political narratives of the moment, almost always politically to the left, unabashedly and without shame. Today, many people consider CNN, along with MSNBC, to be the cable news counterpoints to Fox News and conservative narratives. The difference is that Fox News was well-defined as conservative-leaning from its inception. The transformation of CNN from a relatively unbiased news source into the notoriously slanted vehicle that it is today has to be the most remarkable devolution in our industry that I can think of. It is also a deeply personal one for me and many longtime colleagues who worked at the old version of CNN. So I go on and talk about more about what Lou Waters thinks, how CNN used to be when I started there, how I got my job at CNN. I was just a, a kid. Um, let's see if there's one funny part. Okay, this is something else Lou said to me. Lou Waters, the former CNN anchor, he said, Rem remember at CNN, our goal was the news was the star. I don't regret a bit of what we did. I'm just very disappointed in what it turned out to be. How would you describe CNN today, I ask? Lou says, when I do catch occasional glimpses, I call it the all-panel network. If it weren't for the panels, we wouldn't be able to see how we feel about things, he says sarcastically. Walter Cronkite would roll over in his grave. Next, Lou talks in a stream of consciousness fashion that sounds as though he's been bursting at the seams to say what he thinks about CNN and today's sorry state of the news. It depresses me, actually, Lou says. I yell at the TV screen. Back in the day, we did very little politics. That's what I told you. The first program was Crossfire, a 30-minute show in early evening that was point-counterpoint. That was our politics. The rest was regular news, what was going on in the country and the world outside of Washington, D.C. I get an equally dismal assessment from a former top CNN executive who describes himself as socially progressive and does not wish to be quoted by name. Nobody who watches CNN thinks they're anything but liberal, and I think their content shows it, he says. Too many of their shows spend their whole time attacking conservative agendas. It's too easy to attack Trump, but they don't put the same energy into the progressive side. Former CNN World Affairs correspondent Ralph Begleiter adds, in routine viewing, CNN does not give you a comprehensive picture. It's very narrowly focused on the political battle in Washington, D.C. I'm not saying that's not important, but it's not a picture of the world today. You almost never see a story. They do panels. And another top TV network executive calls Trump a disaster in many ways, but criticizes what he sees as CNN's biased approach to covering the president. This is a former top TV network executive. He says, it's obviously a very hard place to be, the White House, the presidency. Your skin has to be thick. And Trump suffers from having the thinnest skin of almost anybody 
But it's outrageous. So much of the reporting really comes off as anti-Trump. I find it shocking, says this former top network news executive. I find it shocking so many people on the air are not at all concerned about showing their disdain for the president, and they scoff a lot. I find that to be hard to take. I expect it at MSNBC, and they don't pretend at Fox they're pandering, but CNN? And then, um, I don't know where it is in here, but it was just a funny comment that Lou Waters told me, former CNN anchor. I agree. I don't think Trump's skin is thin, but I, I have different views in here in the book. And a lot of people do think his skin is thin. Um, But uh, Lou Waters said that back in the day, this was just funny, before I even worked at CNN, he worked there, and he said that um, he had twins when he was about 50 years old, and he was working at CNN as an anchor. And he said that CNN was so non-personality-centric that he was instructed not to mention his twins. And in fact, the other anchors were told... Uh, not to mention that he had twins, like anything personal. And he said, even in the very beginning of CNN, they talked about the anchors not identifying themselves by name, just coming on the screen and not even saying who they were because they didn't want the anchors to be the personalities that were driving news. They wanted the news to be the star. Think about the difference between that and what we have today. Um, I wanted to also, I mean, I really, I really like this book. Another of my favorite chapters, the New York Times, all the narratives fit to print, and a former New York Timeser who spoke to me about what's become of the New York Times, which is just mortifies a lot of journalists. He called it the the new woke times. So... um, that's this is an interesting chapter and what i kind of do in the new york times chapter tracing the devolution of the new york times again you can get this you can actually get it on kindle tonight or have me read it to you tonight by getting an audible it's out now but um i kind of look at the new york times through the disaster the disastrous summer of 2019 where they had one horrible embarrassing thing after another happen with their news coverage where they got caught you know, pandering, changing their mind, fixing their headlines, acceding to the mob, acceding to the mob of staffers who work for them. I mean, just a really terrible time for the New York Times. And then the transcript of a staff meeting they had about all of it leaked out and was published. So I have that too. And the context from that meeting as to what it says about how the New York Times defines its role and how it sees itself not as a place that covers the news, but a place that defines narratives. And you'll see in the chapter, you'll see in the chapter that they're planning what the next narrative should be after Russia ended disappointingly for them after the Russia Trump collusion narrative ended. They're talking in their staff meeting how the next, the next storyline is going to be racism, Trump and racism and racism in America and racism permeating every issue. So they're determining in advance what the narrative is going to be for the next year and a half going into the election, rather than saying we're covering the news. I mean, I think that's just a stark example of the difference between seeing yourself as a reporter that reflects the facts on the ground and what's happening and looks for stories powerful interests don't want you to tell, and the notion that they think they're there to tell us what to think, to set the agenda. And when they do that, by the way, the New York Times, as some of you know, 
the rest of the press follow suit for whatever reason. I could never get this when I worked at the network, but they would always have us try to copy the stories or take the lead of the New York Times. I tried to never do that because not that they didn't have legitimate stories, but why would we want to copy or just repeat something that's already been reported? Don't we want to dig up information that's that other people haven't reported? That's what I always tried to do. But once the New York Times reports something or sets a lead, once they started deciding to call President Trump a liar in a headline, that unleashed the way for everybody to do it. I hope you enjoyed that section from my live Thanksgiving Day chat. To hear more of it, you can go to Periscope TV. That's pscp.tv, or just type into your search engine Periscope TV. And when you get there, put my name in the search bar, Cheryl Ackeson, and you can listen to the whole chat, which went almost two hours this time. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. You can share it with your friends, leave a good review, and subscribe to all the podcasts at justthenews.com. You can see a list of them on the homepage there, and you can listen to them wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Also, check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, where I have original reflections about behind-the-scenes information from my reporting on my Sunday TV show. And don't forget that Slanted, my new book that just came out, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism, Slanted is a great holiday gift, either something you can give to yourself or for that person who has almost everything but maybe just not a complete understanding of why the news media looks like it does today. Slanted's a perfect opportunity. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.